Good morning to you all, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, as we were singing that, that hymn, um, I was um, thinking that that should just be our prayer, that this morning the Spirit would open up God's Word to us and change us. So, please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2, and starting with verse 14. This week we're going to be confronting a bit of a troublesome passage, and it's troublesome both um, intellectually and practically. And that uh, first problem, the intellectual one, is fairly easy to deal with. In fact, it's ground that we have covered before today, and uh, we'll lay those issues to rest again, I hope for good. However, I do want to stick my finger into the wound of the practical side, and I want to wiggle it around as much as possible. It's a nasty image, isn't it? But I really want to irritate that in, as much as possible in the hope that it's going to be troublesome to us for the rest of our lives. We need to remember it. If we want to know how God expects us to live as Christians, if we want a standard to compare our actions to, if we want to stand out in the world, then we need to be paying attention to this. Daniel, stop laughing at my glasses. <laughs> we have to be clear that what we will hear today is an iron standard that is one of the defining marks of a genuine Christian. So, let's start by reading from verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? So also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Indeed, someone might say, You have faith and I have works. Demonstrate your faith to me without works, and I will demonstrate my faith to you from my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. Do you want proof, you ignoramus, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as a body without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, let's start with that mental problem. For many Christians who have been reading what Paul says about faith as the only road to salvation, and of course he has a lot to say, James' insistence on works for the same ends appears to be a very radical contradiction. How can this be the case? Well, let's just think about this. To start off with, at grassroots level, first of all, if, uh, and I can't claim that I've done this, but my readings show this to be the case, um, if you do an analysis of James's writings, 
it shows him to be well aware of Paul's theology and also agreeable to what it says. So why would he make such an obvious argument against it? And secondly, those wise men who debated the credibility of various books for inclusion in the Bible as canon, well, they would have had to have been outstandingly stupid to create an obvious disagreement like this. So clearly, just from a logical point of view, it is impossible. What we need to understand is that Paul and James are using the keywords faith and justify in different ways and actually in different arguments. And when we study this, it seems that when James talks about works, he's talking about the loving things that Christians do that flow out of the new heart that God has given them. On the other hand, Paul is often dealing with works in the sense of complying with those long and tedious mosaic laws. In many respects, though, they do agree that Christians do works in obedience to God. The essence of the actual arguments are that Paul needs us to know that there is not any work ever, no matter how large or unselfish, that will make even the tiniest bit of difference to our salvation. This is the I'm a good person school of thought, which is a sad error. James, on the other hand, goes to great pains to show that once the relationship with God has been established, that works are going to naturally accompany it just like a flower blossoms on a plant and demonstrates the life within it. These are before and after shots of the fellow who ate too many pies, if you like. Maybe they've been to your shop. Yes? <laughs> Yesterday, I weighed 253 kilos. Today, with the new Faith Workout Program, I'm a slimline sports model of only 92. Now, given the faddish reputation of diet programs, this might seem to be a bit of an unfortunate comparison. But there are some realities. If we really have become followers of the Christian diet, then our appearance must be radically different, which often isn't the case. Statistics show that there are too many similarities between Christians and the world. Our divorce rates, adultery, alcoholism, etc., 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 they are all the same, or sometimes even worse, within the church than outside. And this, of course, calls into question the genuineness of many, many conversions. And that's really a very deep tragedy. These are the folk who are just talking about dieting. In fact, we all know that there is no way for us to lose weight but to eat more healthily and to exercise. Feast on the Word of God and practice its instructions. And we must do this whenever possible. It might hurt, and it might be inconvenient, and I guess you know what I'm going to say next. There is no pain, no gain. Yep. As an aside, since we've mentioned um, theology, um, could I have a show of hands here? Who would like to be a theologian? No? Nobody? Uh, it seems to be a bit of a dull occupation, maybe. Lots of thick books and maybe even thicker spectacles. Mine aren't too bad, by the way, yet. Okay, let's see. Who wants to know more about God? Yeah, yeah, lots of you, okay. And uh, anybody who didn't leave their, uh, put their hands up should actually leave the building, the back doors over there. Okay. Well, this is a trick question because um, theology comes from two Greek words. The first one is theos, which means God, and then logos, 
which means word. Hence, theology is a word or a discussion about God. And since we all talk about and discuss God, that makes all of us theologians. Thank you very much. <laughs> At least I hope it does. In my studies for this um, sermon, I came upon this quote. It is, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that theology possesses us. And hence the title of the sermon today, Possession, Not Profession. And I hope that we will see the truth of that in the text today. God bless us as we study and discuss His Word with true understanding and a heart for action. As I said, the mental problem will be easily dealt with. So let's go on now to study the rest of the passage in a bit of detail, which hopefully will stir our consciousness and provoke some sanctification in action. As we look at the verses from 14 through to 20, we're going to see that James provides three examples of false faith. He talks about hollow speech, hollow concern, and hollow belief. Hey, that's a three-point sermon. I think this is going to be okay. <laughs> so the first example is hollow speech. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James addresses his argument to his brothers. In, others, in other words, those that he feels to be fellow believers. So he's talking to someone else, isn't he? Right? Yeah? Yep. Well, it sounds very nice and cozy. However, this is a well-phrased reminder for the reader to do some self-examination. You know, sometimes when we achieve a position of emotional security within a group of our peers, we might stop questioning whether this is the right place to be and the right behavior to be emulating. Although it offends my pride to be called a sheep, if I'm truthful, I do want to follow and belong to a friendly flock. So that description of being a sheep is sadly accurate. But at least, I think, if we're going to be in a flock, we should have a bit of a look around to see any of the other sheep are black ones. Similarly, we are being immediately challenged at the opening of the verse to ask ourselves, is this me that he's talking about? James has used a very wise strategy because nobody likes to be confronted directly and consequently such con conversations often fail to convince the listener to change because they're on their high horse now, their ears are shut. And we shouldn't misunderstand the verse to mean that we are being asked to pass judgment on our fellow believers. Oh, look at that misguided fellow over there. Yeah, that's you, Gary. I can see that he has no faith. Okay? That's not the case. Actually, when we read this verse, we ought to go away and have a look in a mirror because it's going to be talking about us. And of course, just looking is not enough because we have to deal with what we see. When James uses the phrase, if someone says, he is defining the context of the verse. He is asking the question, if someone has the appearance of faith, how do you know that it is real? <coughs> Unfortunately, God did not put a red light on our foreheads to indicate whether we are lying or whether we are being truly faith, um, faithful, which is a pity because it would save an awful lot of bother. It does occur to me, though, that such a light might prove difficult when faced with questions in the vein of, does the toffee chicken taste nice? Hmm. 
Of course it does, dear. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Why is it so important that we have works? What good is it, as James says? Well, the stakes are the highest possible. Can that faith save him? Save him from what? Boring sermons? Perhaps a nagging wife? What sort of saving are we talking about here? Of course it is the saving of our eternal lives, the certainty of life in heaven with God when we die. There is nothing more important. It is here that we must apply that ruler to our own faith and ask the question, am I truly saved? If I can lay down that measure of works and see that my actions match it, then I have confidence that I am really one of God's children. If not, well, my life is the same as the rest of the world and empty of works flowing out of my faith. Well, then I've got some hard thinking to do. Now please, please note, okay? Underline, underline, okay? Put a big circle around it. Asterisks. I am not saying that works by themselves will save us. They cannot. Okay? They cannot. And the Bible is very clear about that. There should be the unmistakable external evidence of saving faith within that has been given to us by God. For sure, helping the poor is laudable, but on its own, it's going to be of no help at all when we stand in front of the judgment seat of God. Only the blood of Jesus has any effectiveness there. We are frequently sidetracked by things here on earth. Too often we focus on what others think of us so that we behave in ways that are calculated to win their approval. Now, it's one thing to have a facade of sophistication at a social event, but when we consider the stakes for failure, how foolish and tragically misguided it is to attempt to provide the appearance of Christianity, but not to actually live the evidence. Who are we trying to impress? What is our motive? The opinion of others? What really matters? How others see us or whether we please and obey God. To paraphrase James, can that man-pleasing faith save him? For example, if I got a photograph of a rope and I held on it and jumped off a cliff, is it going to stop me from hitting the ground? Well, of course not. I can remember... As a kid, we fooled around with the, uh, the theme tune for the Spider-Man cartoon. Any of you guys remember that? Okay. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look in the hospital bed. Hey there, there lies the Spider-Man. You know, trusting in a faith that does not flow into works is like hanging on to the rottenest of threads ten stories up. I've already mentioned the title of the sermon, which is Possession and Not Profession. Active daily works in obedience to God distinguishes the one who possesses Christ from the one who merely professes Him. Of course, since we're talking about works, well, what are we actually talking about? What should we be doing to give us real Christian substance? What are good works? Since we are in James... If we have a look through the whole of his letter for examples, well, these are the things that we find. Endurance, perseverance under trial, purity of life, obedience to scripture, compassion for the needy, impartiality, acts of compassion, 
control of the tongue, humility, truthfulness, and patience. When we talk about works, we should be careful to understand that whilst doing good things for our neighbors is consistent with the command to love our neighbor and is obedient to God, it is not all that is required of us in the matter of works. Our works have to include those things that are done out of others' sight or knowledge. And they will be done for God's benefit alone. Because in this, we will also be obeying the greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God. Service of this kind is a true test of whether we serve God or are trying just to please men. When you consider the scope of that list that we've just looked at, never mind what we find in the rest of the Bible, it's obvious that there are going to be plenty of opportunities for works. It's not going to be hard to find something to do. It's expected to be an ongoing and continuous activity for the true Christian. Okay? There are no weekends off for good behavior. So far, we have been discussing the danger and futility of hollow speech. We must ensure that our speech is borne out by our actions. So let's move on now to talk about James's second evidence of false faith, which is hollow concern. In verses 15 to 17 he says, If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, Well, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? So also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the way that the Greek is constructed in this sentence suggests that the one who is suffering has been like this for a while and that the person who should be helping um, should also, uh, he wants them to go away and sort, sort it out themselves. He doesn't really want to get involved. This observer has had a while to think about their suffering brother's position. However, instead of giving them the clothes and food they provide, they only just give the appearance of concern. And imagine, imagine the situation in, in real life. Here's a Christian who enjoys at least some worldly comforts and has the opportunity to share them with somebody they know that hasn't got those opportunities and they've been watching it for a while and yet they send them away with the cold comfort of just a few words. Now, we might have met folk who are actually like this, but I think that it would be highly unusual that the average person wouldn't help. In fact, it is really an unlikely and ridiculous situation. And James is using this illustration to show how unlikely and ridiculous it is that there is no connection between faith and works. They are inseparable and inextricably interwoven. Now, this little mess here is politely known by fishermen as a bird's nest. Okay, And uh, if you do any fishing with overhead reels, you will be well familiar with these because when you use them a bit too enthusiastically, um, this happens. It's absolutely impossible to unwind and the only solution is to cut it off, which is why I have this mess here. And faith and works are wrapped together just like this. They cannot be separated. Works are the blood supply of faith. Without them, faith never was alive, never is alive, and never will be. When James asks what good is it, he means two things. What good is it for the one who is suffering? 
And what good is it for the one who should have helped? So God's purpose is twofold. He brings relief to those who suffer. And I hope you will remember from my last sermon that God has a very special concern for the needy. And he continues his sanctifying work in the believer. The third characteristic of dead faith that we're going to talk about is superficial knowledge that does not penetrate the heart to create action or hollow conviction. And here's how James puts it. Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Demonstrate your faith to me without works and I will demonstrate my faith to you from my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. Do you want proof, you ignoramus, that faith without works is useless? <laughs> I really like this translation because it's very blunt. Pulls no punches. Do you want proof, you ignoramus, that faith without works is useless? James isn't mincing his words at all with regard to his opinion of the one he is addressing. Now, in the same way that our previous passage invites us to test its question against our own attitudes, so does this one. I'm sure that no one would wish to admit to being a faithless ignoramus. Well, where are your works? Faith seems to be a completely intangible subject. You might have it, but you cannot grasp it. It has no color. It has no shape. It doesn't smell, and it won't come when you command it. Do you know God, or do you just know about Him? What is the evidence of faith's presence? It is works. Of course it is works. Doing what you believe. I itch, therefore I scratch. I have living faith, therefore I must do works. I do works whenever and wherever I can, not to please man, but to please my heavenly Father who has chosen me to be His Son, rescued me from death through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. Now, a wise man recently asked me whether I believe what I say when I stand in this pulpit. Well, yes, of course I believe it, or I wouldn't say it. But how do you know? How do you really know if I truly believe it. I mean, I might just be a good man, I mean, sorry, a good actor, re rehashing other better men's words. And goodness knows, if you go and have a look in the library out the back, you'll find plenty of those. I might be someone who's just seeking favor and prestige from being in the public eye. Well, there's a test. What do you see me doing? And as I stand here speaking to you, I am mindful of the need to take the tree out of my eye while I speak about the splinter in yours. James is asking the same question. So, you say you believe? Well, good on you, mate. But even God's sworn enemies believe, and they have the good sense at least to show appropriate reaction to the Lord of all. So what's your reaction? Go on. Show me your invisible faith in a way that proves it Meanwhile, I can easily show you my faith by what I do. Is this us, James is speaking to? Is this you and me? What would the world and the church be like if every Christian had works flowing from their faith? Consider the possibilities. Can you imagine what a church where all its people lived out their faith and works would be like? 
do you think the building would ever be big enough or that it wouldn't have influence and respect and impact in its community? Do you think that God would be glorified or continue to be marginalized in the butt of jokes? It would be amazing. And it can be. Because it's down to you and me when we walk out of here today. What will we do with what we know? The last passage we will deal with today is James's final examples of the connection between genuine, genuine faith and works. And I'll read from verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. See how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by a different route. For just as a body without a spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. When I started to, um, <laughs> when I started to look at this, I thought, oh no, why did I pick James? Okay, because this passage is one of the most problematic in the Bible to understand. Because it apparently represents a very, very direct and absolutely opposite challenge to Paul's teaching that justification is by faith alone and by grace alone. James picks two Old Testament characters, Abraham and Rahab, as examples to show that ignoramus the power of works. Now Abraham is one of the most revered figures in Jewish history and you could argue that given his position and character it's not really that surprising that he would be a great example of faith in action. Rahab on the other hand, well she is specifically identified as a harlot, as a prostitute and not the sort of person we would expect to show valued faith through works. And of course that's the point. Now since time is getting by, I'm not going to analyze this passage in detail because the point is already clearly made. Faith without works is dead. Okay? However, I do want to try to address this supposed contradiction between Paul and James. And it's going to be a little bit technical, but it's more than some obscure theological problem, which is only of interest to scholars. You know, as Christians, we are called to defend our faith. And situations, apparent contradictions like this, are exactly the sort of things that opponents of Christianity will use to prove that the Bible is just a fairy story, that it doesn't speak a consistent message. And we ought to be in a position to provide the right answer. So that's why I want to present this to you. The problem starts in verse 21 where James says that Abraham was justified by works. But in Romans 4, 1 to 3, Paul says very clearly the opposite. What then can we say that Abraham found our ancestor according to the flesh? Indeed, if Abraham was justified on the basis of his works, he has reason to boast. But this was not so in the sight of God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do we understand this word justification? Well, today we have this 
Um, Definition is the word I was looking for, because I was kind of hoping that the next slide would come up. No? No? Back? Back? Oh, I must have left it out. But it's in your broadsheets. Okay. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he firstly thinks of our sins as forgiven, and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, if you look at that definition, it seems like Paul and James are squarely at odds. One says that we're justified by faith, and the other one says that we are justified by works. Okay? However, when we have a, a careful look at this Greek word that they use, dikiyau, okay, which is used by both men and is translated as justify, a solution appears. Paul uses this term a great deal, and it is always from the perspective of a sinner's initial transfer from the realm of sin and death into the realm of holiness and life. And this transfer is accomplished specifically and singly through the sinner's identification with Christ through faith. Okay, And this is consistent with that definition of justification. Now, James, on the other hand, while there's quite a lot of scholarly dispute over about how he uses this, this, word, this word justification, the most credible position is that he intends the word to describe God's final proclamation of righteousness over a person's life instead of his initial saving declaration. So what that means is that when James says justify, Paul would say judgment. Okay? And these two positions have sometimes been described as initial justification and final justification. The judgment and final proclamation that I'm talking about, of course, is the one that every human must face when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ with resurrected bodies and hear his decision on their final destiny. Does that make some sense? Okay? They're not talking about the same things, so there is no argument. James is talking about something that happens at the end of our lives. And see, now that's sincere criticism is when your wife leaves your sermon. <laughs> She's going to make tea. Paul describes how our works will have relevance at this time, at the end of our lives, when we stand before that judgment throne in Romans 2, verses 5 to 7. By your stubbornness and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves for the day of wrath and revelation of the just judgment of God, who will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance in good works. Understood this way, Paul and James are complementary rather than contradictory. They work together. They're telling us the same thing. This has been the message all along. Paul speaks to us of how we gain eternal life, and James is explaining how we ought to live our lives in continuous acts of God-pleasing works with an eye on that final judgment. To finish, I'd like to read a short piece of Luther's writing on faith from his preface to Romans. It's extremely ironic that Luther should sum up James's message so well, because Luther has a very low opinion of James. He called it a right, strawy epistle. And in fact, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. 
and he didn't even think it should be part of the Bible. So this is what Luther said about faith. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes around and looks for faith in good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Let us all be found doing good things incessantly, not talking and talking about them. Let us pray. Father, your word can cut us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't see that pain as something to be avoided, but something to be valued. I pray that the pain that you've given us today, thinking about our own works in relation to our faith, would serve to remind us of what we ought to be doing, and it would spur us to go on doing those things that are your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.